Lauren Paler, and welcome to Currency Exchange in partnership with World Class, brought to you by Diageo. World Class is a leading voice in cocktail culture and exists to inspire people to care about what, where, and how they drink. There is a great opportunity to connect with stories of our past and inner present. There is little value in knowing our history if it is incomplete and narrated in an inauthentic way. Your voice has value, just like currency, and collectively telling our stories will play a vital role in changing the narrative. Now let's introduce this week's episode. In episode 10 of Currency Exchange, I'm joined by Laura Lashley and Mr. Lyon. Laura Lashley is a National Education Manager for Seedlab, where she leads the branch training and advocacy programs in the U.S. Mr. Lyon, otherwise known as Ryan, is known for his notable establishments, pushing boundaries and making waves for the way that we approach cocktail making and curating innovative ingredients. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of Currency Exchange. Really, really excited um, as I have probably two of my favorite people in this room today. I do not say that to everyone, y'all. Um, so <laughs> sure. <laughs> We're chatting with Laura Lashley and Mr. Ryan or Mr. Lyon um, today, and I'm really excited to chat with you both because I think uh, today's topic really resonates with both of you. So hello. Hello. Hi. Yay. Um, so today's topic, being stewards of nature. For those of you who are familiar with Seedlip, you know that this is a slogan that is often utilized um, and aligns very much with the brand, but it also really embodies um, a lot of what bartenders are integrating into their craft today. So what does it mean to be a steward of nature? Uh, today, we're gonna discuss the best ways to be the best version of yourself by utilizing what the environment has to offer and how to take care of our environment. Um, sustainable practices can be implemented wherever possible and it looks different for everyone. Um, the all or nothing mentality is something that I often um, advocate for people kind of getting rid of and it really prevents us from taking advantage of the opportunities to take better care of ourselves in the earth. Um, so let's get started. Uh, what, what, what do you, what do you all think about this? This "We Are Nature" slogan. Um, Seedlip is obviously a product that's been around for I can't even say a little bit now. It's been around for a while now. Um, what, what are your thoughts about ways to integrate sustainability and um, really changing this mindset of all or nothing uh, when you know talking about the topic? Yeah. Do you want me to? kick it off. I can, I can take that one. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, it's interesting that you frame it up with the all or nothing thing, I think right from the start, because I think um, when talking about nature or, you know, the natural kind of progression is to talk about sustainability. And I think, you know, um, it's easy to, I think for people and for brands, to be a little bit scared to say, this is what I care about, you know, we're a nature company or we're interested in sustainability because you feel like the lens of scrutiny might be very high and you might not live up to those perfect standards of what, where you'd like to be. Um, and so I think for Seedlip, the thing I really love, um, and this comes from Ben, the founder, is that, you know, nature is what we make our product out of. It's what we, like to do on our weekends. Um, and I also, um, I think that like, it's, 
it's a cellar, the product itself is a celebration of nature. And of course we care about the earth and we want to kind of parlay that into ways that we can be better to the planet. Um, but that doesn't mean we're perfect as a brand. And I think, um, you know, back as a bar manager, when I wanted to have a more sustainable bar program, I used to just feel really intimidated. Like you had to fix everything all at the same time or it wasn't worth anything. Um, and I think that kind of holds true for individuals and for bars and for brands. It's like, you know, we're all connected to nature. We should all celebrate it and do our best to maintain it and be good to the planet. Um, and there are little ways that we can do that without feeling like it's an all or nothing, like, uh, you know, ultimatum, <laughs> I guess, if that makes sense. I think that both of those things were wonderful descriptions of, of, of the embrace vet, but I think it also, it, it maps what's happening around us. You know, I think it's a topic that's become um, very everyday for the every person. And I think people have started to realize how it impacts everyone at every stage of our lives. And I think one of the things that's been difficult and, you know, it, it held back a lot of momentum was this, some of these myths. And I think one of the major myths was this idea that it's like, you know, you, you have to be all or nothing in terms of the approach to it. And, you know, I think it was uh, tracking alongside that, there was a, almost a, a bit of paralysis that came because, you know, people understood it was such an important topic and they were like, well, how do I get started? You know, there's so many big things that need to be taken into consideration. And it just kind of created this kind of overwhelming sense of anxiety that helped, it's kind of stopped people getting started on that, that kind of train of it. Um, but I think we're now in a stage where people are realizing that they can make very easy kind of little additions into their daily lives. And, you know, all of those little things add up and it's, it's part of the momentum to, to have these things kind of snowball. And I think, you know, it's, it's no longer become just about the, the kind of scary side of the topic. It's meant that people have got closer to nature. They've started to explore more in their food and drink. They've connected with people in a different way. And I think it's, you know, it's really positive to see that it's gone from, you know, these myths and these barriers being um, like a very heavy part of the topic to going, actually, this is something that I can partake in, in in very kind of easy ways and I can really fold it into my life. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I love that you said ba uh, barriers, um, because I think often when we talk about sustainability, um, you know, for a really long time, it was discussed in a way where it was uh, compared to very much being a luxury. Um, and so really taking it you know, one thing at a time, because, you know, we're human, we want to do everything, obviously, very naturally at once. Um, but taking it one step at a time and one thing at a time really does provide us with opportunity, which is awesome. Absolutely. Um, I love that. Awesome. So, Brian, I want to chat with you a little bit about your creative process with cocktail making. So there's always a story to be told. So how do you approach this when making cocktails with c -Lip? or, you know, boozeless beverages in general and incorporating the story of ingredients? whether it be yeah, obscure I, or familiar, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, there's obviously sometimes you just, you come across something and it's, it's purely flavor-led and it's a, it's a great way of being able to create and sometimes something just kind of sparks and you make a, a link to something or an association. And it's, it's, it's something I suppose that we, we have quite innate for those of us who work in, in flavor. Um, but I think particularly, and actually that was really crucial when it was looking at some of these more um, you know, different sides of the industry that didn't have those classics to fall back on. You were, you were looking at some of those ways to make sure it still tasted delicious if you weren't following the kind of standard formulae. But I think one of the things that I've always been excited by in, in food and drink is, is the stories behind it. It's, you know, it's the things that excite us, it's things connect us, you know, the storytelling is what 
has turned like food from being purely functional into something that we do together. And I, and I love that. And I think it's something that's really important. Um, and I think often that what we get to do is an opportunity, particularly in the way that we, we put flavors together is, is make that really easy for people to, to be involved in. You know, it's, it's taking away again, those barriers that were self-imposed and all of those things that make it feel really heavy or pretentious and go, well, how do we tell a story that's just really nice to, to be involved in? And it can link to, you know, a certain culture in a way that people gather. It could be a certain story of a producer or where they, how they make their ingredients. Any of those things are, are wonderful things for everybody to be able to, to kind of link to. Um, so we'll often try and find a way of going, well, how do we just make sure that that's really like easy for people to step into? It doesn't require a lecture, doesn't require a history lesson. Uh, it's just about little tidbits of information that mean that people can, um, yeah, just get involved in an amazing conversation around it. So we'll, we'll try and look for those really human stories, those things that feel relevant and very accessible. Um, and we'll fold different layers on top of that. It doesn't want to be, again, you know, it, it, it's not a story if it's really heavy handed. You know, it needs to be deft. It needs to be in a way that, um, you know, uses a bit of allegory or a bit of metaphor or, or like just does it in a kind of whimsical way but we use that as a way of going well how can we fold those stories into our drink so at the very base level if somebody just wants to grab the drink they get a delicious drink and it's you know it, it's interesting and it tastes unusual because I think that's a, a, a major part of what's delicious um, but then they can delve in a bit deeper then go well why why are all these weird ingredients together why is this in my drink why is it come together in this particular balance and we can kind of delve back into that story and start to, to find ways of, of intriguing them on a different level as well. For sure. And then Laura, my question for you really um, leans into this idea of being more inclusive in our spaces. You know, often when we utilize this word inclusivity, we're thinking about like diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. But um, we've had many conversations about CLIP and just even the way that we place it on the menu, right? Are we being considerate and you know, where it's being placed. Is it on the back with the kids' drinks or is it in the front with all the other drinks? Because that says a lot about, you know, the thought that went into creating this beverage. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the importance of education, specifically with the bartenders and how that plays into being able to be more inclusive. Yeah, I love this question. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think just really quick, if I can not lose my train of thought between bridging these two parts of the conversation, I love what Ryan was saying about the stories and I think that, you know, to tie it back into the nature element, something I should say, actually, first and foremost, Seedlip is a non-alcoholic spirit. We didn't quite touch on that, um, but it is a really unique product and a unique space. And um, I think as bartenders, sometimes we're used to having a lot of tools. Like we have, you know, look at your back bar. You've got like a hundred bottles back there that you could use to make a cocktail, to bring flavors to life. You've got modifiers and Amaros and vermouths and all these different ingredients. Um, when you're trying to work with non-alcoholic drinks, a lot of those things go away and you're kind of forced to think about flavor in a really purist, like what does this ingredient do for, for flavor? Like I can't reach for that, maybe that bitter aperitif I would usually use. So now I have to think about gentian and like, how do I get flavor out of gentian? Um, so for me, working with non-alcoholic drinks has kind of, as a bartender, given me a more like direct contact with the natural world and the actual ingredients that I'm using for flavor. And I think that has been, and those people have stories too, right? Like, yes, these, these producers of incredible historic spirits have beautiful stories that we can share with our guests and train our staffs on, but the farmers who make 
these like insanely good strawberries in, in the Los Angeles area that sell out at the farmer's market, like right away. And you have to get there first thing in the morning if you want the strawberries, like those have a story too. So I think that part of, of like working with nature in a non-elk space is really exciting. And it's what I think creatively can be really fun for bartenders. You know, there's only so many ways to recut some of these formulas with products that we're used to working with. So this is like a really fun new frontier. Um, and on that, I think, you know, <laughs> tie it back in um, to the to my real question, um, which was like, you know, where does it go on the menu? How do you make people feel included? Um, I think that, you know, for those of us working in the non-alcoholic space, this feels like an old conversation, but I still have it every single week with like, why, why should we not call it a mocktail? Well, we don't want to make people feel like a kid. We don't want to make them feel like we're mocking them. You know, what, what, how do we give this drink a beautiful glass and a garnish so that somebody feels that just as much care and thought has gone into their preparation as their friend who's drinking the whiskey drink? Like, I think all of those things are so important. And I've said this a few times in the last year, but I think we've learned in from 2020 that like, going out and having a drink with friends is about a lot more than just the booze. Like we could all pour ourselves an alcoholic drink at home during, you know, lockdown or whatever and enjoy it um, and, you know, enjoy a good cocktail. But we were missing that like human connection and social element, missing that like celebration with friends and family in like a cool bar or a beautiful restaurant. So like, there's so much more than just the alcohol. And because someone isn't partaking in alcohol for whatever reason, doesn't mean they suddenly don't want to participate in that space. And so giving them, you know, a way in, I think is, is really important. And the menu space, you know, I've kind of come around. I used to really, I used to advocate really strictly for this like included in the cocktail section approach. But what I've learned is because of where we're at, at least in the US, and it might be different, um, overseas, but in the US, because this is still a new category and Seedlip is still a new brand to a lot of people, um, the, the bartenders and servers feel the need to tell people that it's non-alcoholic. If it's too cleverly disguised in the cocktail section, they need to say like, just so you know, this is a non-alcoholic drink, which then kind of calls people out and does that exact same thing we were trying to avoid with the like section in the back by making people feel like they're somehow not a part of the regular experience. So I'm, I'm newly a fan of just a really clearly labeled, you know, non-alcoholic or alcohol-free cocktail section that lives right on the same page before the cocktails maybe, or right after the cocktails um, in a way that makes people see automatically what's there for them and gives them that space to be really comfortable and be like, okay, this is, they have something for me. This is so exciting. They have more than one thing for me. Um, so that's kind of, where I've landed with the menu, but that, that should change and could change as this category grows and as people get more comfortable with that stuff. That's the super interesting point about it. I think it's, we've seen a lot of change in terms of that over the years that we've knew It's been part of like our menus since the start of the Lion Company. And, you know, the way that we used to list things, the way that we change language. I mean, we always tried to do exactly what you said. You're, you're championing these amazing ingredients because doesn't matter if that's got booze in it or not. Like it, it should be about these incredible stories and balance and feeling as special as it can do. But I think we've changed a lot and not because I think, you know, some of it's the things that we've learned. We've seen the successes and we've seen things that perhaps weren't clear enough. And, you know, we've ended up changing different strategies, but I think that's also because the space is changing so rapidly. It's no longer about, you know, previously, I think we had success with our non-alc sections because there were people who knew that we did it and they would come out and seek it. 
And that was great yeah. because we got people like we uh, allowed a greater section of people to feel included in the cocktail bar. That was that was a, a major aim for us. But I think as time gone has gone on, we're actually getting you know people will like alternate drinks. So people will be having a cocktail and then they'll have something non-alcohol. You know they'll be coming in on a different occasion. And you know basically it's it's expanded. The the reasons why people are drinking is is much wider than I think we understood as an industry. And I think what is meant as a consequence for that is we've changed how we communicate them and, and, and it's different in different settings. You know, it's, yeah. it's really nice being able to look at things in, in Amsterdam and London and DC and go, well, we purposefully look at them as different spaces. We're not going, cool, we just do what we do here and we plug it in everywhere. And we're learning about how different language, different communities, different approaches use those, use a menu as a tool. And so it's about going, what, what is most appropriate for that time and space, but knowing full well that we will always need to evolve and adapt that. This yeah. is like, I think um, I've used this quote from Josh Harris before because he said it once and it's really stuck with me, but he was like, I don't care if it's, you know, if it's just, if it's got a name of a rock and roll band, if it's called, like, I don't care what the cocktail exactly gets called like I don't think there's a right answer um but I think that it should just be given the same the same treatment as the other drinks on the menu so if you're in a dive bar and you don't have a menu like okay sure you're not going to have a non-alcoholic menu that's somehow different than what everything else you're doing is or if you're you know if, if all of your drinks are named after famous historical figures and your seat and your seedlip cocktails are called cherry fizz, you know, it feels different. It's like not the same. So there isn't a one size fits all answer to this question. And a lot of people, especially in the like, you know, distributor world or like sales world want the answer. They're like, where do, what do we, where do we put this on the menu? What do we call it? Like we want the one answer. And I think it's changing. And I think it being, and back to your inclusivity kind of question to begin with Lauren, I think you just have to, and it's so cool to hear. And I've seen that you guys like take the feedback of the space that you've created and you adapt for the community that you've got to, you know, to take into consideration what's working instead of saying like, we do it this way and here is how you will read our menu. <laughs> and, and I think you're, you're right as well. Sorry to <laughs> jump on again at the point, but um, you know, what you said about like, you know, particularly from the point of inclusivity, I think you don't want to stigmatize it or call it out because you don't know the reasons why there's some points in like, I, I can't drink for medicine. So I will then, I still want to be able to be in a bar. It's still all the things that we talk about and I will order in a specific way, but I don't want somebody to be like, oh, you know, that's non-alcoholic. It's like, yes, I know that's not alcoholic. I don't need that called out to a group of people. And it's like, you know, that's our whole role is, you know, working in the world of hospitality is to be hospitable and make things kind of like work for that individual. And so I think ways in which you can make it clear and you're signposting in a manner that, makes it feel as accessible and, and inclusive to people as possible without like creating this weird like sidelining aspect of it and you know I, I've had several friends say the same thing they're like I don't want people to know that I'm not drinking and I want to be out in a bar and um, I want to be able to cheers with my friends but I don't want it to be like this whole thing of going going to kind of come across and like put the rope around you and put the drip down <laughs> to make it feel like you're completely like bubbled away from it. So I think it's, it, it's a, again, these are things that we're, we're learning. I don't think that the industry or, or individuals 
you know, we're doing that out of any, you know, sort of like major ignorance of it. I think it's just something that we're, we're starting to, to kind of understand more as, as, as time goes on. Yeah, I agree. Um, so actually, both of you made me think of something. What are your, um, what are your thoughts about the way that these cocktails are also presented to the guests? Should they, should they be able to tell that it's different than the other drinks? Should they look the same? Should there be an indicator specifically for the bartenders? Like, what are your thoughts there? I mean, I, if, if I can jump in a little, just, um, I think from, there needs to be very clear protocol from the bar side, because the last thing that you can do is, is mess that up. Um, like it's, it's, it's really crucial that if you're doing a drink that comes in a non-alc and a alcoholic form, there needs to be very, it's like allergens. Like there needs to be an absolutely bulletproof system that means that you know what you're dropping and, you know, but that, that to me is an internal signaling thing. Um, and I've always held the belief that the drink should feel as considered as adult, as like balanced in every sense as, as any other drink in the space. But the only thing, this, this was an interesting challenge to me that came from a friend who's not part of the industry um, who went, well, what if I'm recovering and I don't drink and it's too much like, a, you know, if are you trying to create something that triggers or signifies in a similar way? And it was actually something I, I hadn't thought about. It was, it was actually an interesting challenge. And um, I asked the question back. I was like, well, what, what do you want? And you know, I think, you know, it's, I suppose it, again, is very individually based in terms of that. Um, and I've, I've had friends who say they want something that looks and feels like a cocktail, um, because it's meant to feel special and be like that. But I think they're also, I suppose, you know, this is, again, things that we'll learn about. And, you know, as it expands, we'll find ways to make it feel as, as, as kind of comfortable for everyone who needs to be in, in that space. Yeah, I think, you know, actually this exact topic came up in like an industry Facebook group that I follow along in and people were discussing like, how do you signify to make sure that there's not a mix up at the service wall or a mix up, you know, behind, you know, with what's getting dropped at the table or whatever. And I think your point is, is right, Ryan. Like, it's just, if you're taking the time to make these drinks on your menu, your staff needs to be really, really clear. There's an education that has to happen about even just the way they're discussed, the way the flavors are talked about, and that could aid with what you're talking about now. Like, you know, it's really clear that this thing gets served in a coupe glass and, you know, is a, a replica as close as we can of a Boulevardier or something along those lines. Like that's a very different description to the guests than like, hey, this is, you know, a refreshing highball with coconut milk and these other components. But I think like, um, you know, that conversation is very personal to the individual. You know, some people will ask me, is seed lift triggering? And, you know, I don't know the answer to that because again, it's like a completely personal decision. I know that we're legally non-alcoholic. So from that perspective, like it's, you know, it's, it is what it is, but the flavor component and what that feels like to people individually, I think is personal. But I do think that like, if you say you had a daiquiri and you want to do a non-alcoholic version of the daiquiri and you want to do an alcoholic version of the daiquiri, I don't think you should put the non-alc in some sort of like crushed ice pint glass with like a pink curly Q straw just to make sure that no one messes it up. But you yeah. could totally give it a different garnish. It doesn't, you know, as long as you don't change the quality of the execution and presentation of the drink, it can look different. It doesn't need to be a complete disguise. It just needs to feel like a cocktail to someone or like a great drink, you know? And I think um, we're all learning what those like, minutia look like from a service perspective and from a brand perspective too yeah no I think those are great points um 
So what I wanted to kind of transition into is education with non-alcoholic um, beverages, because what I, you know, I, I obviously work with Seedlip, so I'm very familiar with the product. Um, but just curious, you know, I, what I found was that a lot of um, individuals just are unfamiliar with the vast uh, <laughs> options that come with the, the category. And how important do you feel that having an understanding, not just of the flavors, but the way it's produced, um, uh, is in being successful in creating cocktails or good cocktails, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, do you want to do you want to start that one or? Um, oh, it's a it's a it's a good question, um, and I think listen, I'm a firm believer in education being crucial, kind of a, a, across the board. I think that only helps things, um, and I think it's it's been interesting to see how much it's. You know, I think compared to other parts of the industry, you know, the, the history of all of our various whiskeys and cognacs and all those things has been very hand in hand between trade and consumer. Whereas with the, the, the kind of explosion in the boozeless space has been, I suppose, a, you know, the, the, the public have understood as much as the, the kind of trade have. Um, so it's, it's an interesting point in terms of the kind of education around it at the moment. And I think, you know, the more that we can equip people with that knowledge, the better you know, guests feel comfortable coming into a bar and ordering something and pushing their comfort zone and, and having something that fulfills and on that kind of magical way that going to visit a professional space can do. But also then for the for the trade, I mean, I think there wasn't a blueprint for a lot of this stuff. And I think the understanding of um, how it was put together, why it was put together and what it can do, I think is only going to mean that we end up with with kind of more interesting combinations and drinks. Um, you know, I think there was a period to begin with where people kind of just went, cool, I straight sub. And they didn't think about the nuancing that needed to happen and, and how else they needed to look at the journey of the cocktail because it was new to people. And, you know, I, I think some of those, those first iterations, yeah, they, they, they didn't do justice to the products. They didn't do um, justice to, the, to, to what the guest needs were, but it's rapidly evolved from there. So I think the more that we can get education in the more I think it will help people um explore I think there is a lot that you know there is you know as you, you Laurie talks about legally kind of non-alc I think there is you know there's a lot of things that people are straying into going well I'm going to reduce the booze but actually realizing that they need to be much more like kind of uh conscious about it if they're going well this is a non there is zero alcohol in this yeah. um so I think there's 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 a there is there's more that needs to be done in this space in terms of that education um but i feel like it's you know given the fact that it's yeah it's, i suppose it's not that young anymore but you know it, it's a compared to the rest of our industry it's still a relatively young space um and i think we've, we've managed to get to a, a a good level with it but always more education more more pushing in terms of um like getting people to understand the, the breadth of it and, and what else they can explore within it is going to be really important as we go forward. Yeah, I think for Seedlip, the education component has been essential because people only know what they know, right? So when you introduce someone to something new, they're automatically comparing it or looking for ways to equate it to something that they've had before or something that they're familiar with. And so for bartenders, 
saying this is a spirit, you know, that brings a certain amount of expectation that they're going to get certain things out of the experience of tasting. And, you know, Seedlip is meant to be mixed. Ben always says he like, didn't think people would want to do shots of non-alcoholic spirit. So he really created this product to be mixed into a drink as the foundation or the, you know, the heart of the cocktail. But, you know, if you don't, explain or know that coming into things, you know, we're all trained as professionals to tip things neat and judge them based on that. So there's a lot of, you know, nuance to like explaining to a seasoned bartender, hey, like unlearn some of the things or unthink some of the things you think, you know, here's a new product and you're going to need to work with it a little bit differently. And yes, it's not going to do X, Y, and Z, but it is going to give you all these other things. And um, I think Ryan, your point is totally true. I've seen the same thing. Like in the beginning it was kind of, or, you know, and to some extent still is kind of like, I'm going to take out the tequila and which product can I put in to replace it without having to like do much else. And, you know, I think that's okay. That's a great place to start. We all need a, a formula that we're familiar with to kind of get our sea legs with making non-elk stuff. I, I did it that way. The first time somebody gave me a, a bottle of seed lip, you know, I was like, okay, what do I do with this? I'll make an east side or I'll make a gimlet. And I still make those because they're delicious, but that's not to say that there aren't like new frontiers that we can think about. And the flavor, back to what you said earlier, Ryan, about flavor first, when you're kind of creating drinks, um, you know, I like to think about Seedlip and, and other non-alk products and other non-alk spirits in terms of what flavor they're contributing, not what they don't have, right? Like, it's very easy to be like, well, it doesn't have the texture or it doesn't have the heat or it's like, okay, well, what were those things doing in your cocktail? What, what layers of flavor is this contributing? And then what else do you need? What other ingredients should you be using? So um, I think, and again, like the more we can teach people about nature, about the vast you know, wonderful world of ingredients that are out there to use and to play with and to ferment and to work with and like all of the kinds of fun that you can have when you're making cocktails in general um, and then translating that into non-alk stuff. I think it's all, it's all out there. It's fun. No, <laughs> oh, I love that. All right. Well, we're getting to the end of our conversation, but I have two questions for you folks before we conclude. One, if you could go or be anywhere in the world right now, where would you have a meal and what would you have to drink? Oof. Um, the hard questions for the end. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have an immediate answer, Laura? <laughs> no. Uh, no, um, you know, it's... The last place I went overseas before um, before 2020 was Oaxaca, and I didn't have as much time there. I'd like I needed like three more days in order to like really see some of the things that I wanted to explore. Um, so, and I had incredible food there. Um, so I think in my that's what kind of pops immediately to mind. I always want to go somewhere new and say something that I've you know say somewhere I've never been. But like that was my most recent kind of overseas trip, and it left a big impression and makes me want to go back. So I think that's my answer for meal. Um, Ryan, what about you? I mean, Mexico and Japan always come up for me as like places I want to go to. But actually I was, I was chatting with a, a friend recently about um, the last time I was in Singapore and I was in a, a, a brutally short trip on, on the way through somewhere. And um, I was in doing a talk and I caught up with, with VJ from Native late on and um, dear friend amazing time visiting the bar and we went to kind of a hawker meal at like 3 a.m and it was this tiny little street side thing 
Um, and we had just the best time. It was amazing. Just like hanging out in the street, eating some of the most incredible food. He ordered stuff for me that I can eat with my kind of chili intolerance and being a total wuss about stuff. I was um, going to say. Yeah, there was, <laughs> it was basically the kid's meal kind of like put aside for me, but it was, um, it was so much fun. And I think it's just, I think I'm craving those kind of things that, you know, London's back being very alive. So I think, you know, but being in somewhere that feels just, you know, the, the real buzz of a of city like that, I think that that's a, a meal to me. And I was thinking about like, there's plenty of places in that kind of exotic vein where I want to have a drink, like the fruits there were incredible and, you know, all of that side of things, but I'm going to be really cheesy um, and say that I want to be back in the bars because it's been nice being able to be in London. I, and I got to high five the team in Amsterdam and in DC once in amongst this, but in like almost two years of not being able to be in the, those bars, I, that's where I want to have a drink. Um, I want to be able to get across there to Amsterdam and then hightail it to DC and have a drink in both. That's, that's where I want to be at. That's the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> Very truthful. I think my, my drink answer, I think, um, I, we have a really beautiful sister brand with a line of aperitifs that is not in the US um, yet. But Maybe acorn, I get to try that when I go to yeah, London. Yeah, to. I think that's what I, I would love an acorn dry right now. That's kind of the, oh, the drink that I don't have any, I have a bottle of the bitter that made its way across the ocean, but I don't, I haven't had <laughs> any of the acorn dry in probably like two years. So that would be, shout out to Claire. That would be my, my drink of choice, I think. We, we snuck great. some in last time, but yeah, I nice. think that's long gone. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. Wow. Well, I want that. Um, all right. And then I always conclude each episode with a drink inspired by the conversation. So I'm going to give you all a grovy spritz, which will have 1.5 ounces of seed of grove, uh, 0.25 ounces of fresh lemon juice, one ounce of sweetened rhubarb and strawberry tea. So you dehydrate that rhubarb or any excess that you chop off after cooking and strawberry tops dehydrate that and make a tea out of it um, and then top that off with a ginger lime, a lemon soda apologies and it's delicious serve it in uh you know a bold glass or a highball with ice so good nice sounds amazing wonderful yeah, yeah. if i come to amazing. dc will you make me one <laughs> yeah i will actually absolutely <laughs> great on my way there we go there we go uh, <laughs> I appreciate you both so much for joining me today. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to, to share on the topic or in regards to non-alc or business or anything? I think that there was one point that we were discussing just at the end there that I think is, it's a nice oh, consequence sounds the wrong way of saying it. And it's like, say the same thing with like sustainability in general, the way it gets people thinking about creativity or, or ideas in a different way. I think this is the, the thing that I've really loved seeing people explore with this topic is they've started to look at ingredients differently because they're not just relying on exactly as you said, like going, okay, I'm going to pull these modifiers. I'm going to use these other various bits of my back bar. They're really delving into understanding their produce in a better way. And I think that's only a positive for, for flavor, for our own palate and for the planet. So it's, it's a really lovely um, result, and it's tracked really amazingly alongside all these conversations that we're all passionate about that I think is yeah it's, it's, it's an extra thing to love the category for yeah I can't disagree with that it certainly challenged me um as an ambassador in DC uh yeah I, I love that and I you know I think in general um with the NA category 
something I often discuss is that we're kind of currently living in, I mean, we're always currently living in history, but we're experiencing history with a category that is like creating itself currently. And I yep. think we need to really embrace that. Um, you know, we obviously classic cocktails have been around forever, but we're, we're, we're witnessing, you know, these products um, and doing ourselves the, you know, the due diligence of like becoming educated on these, these spirits and the proper ways to utilize them in drinks is only going to assist in defining what this category will eventually like actually be, which I think is really awesome and cool. Yeah, it's so exciting that there's so many new brands and new products and new kinds of things, you know, like it's, there's so many people want choices, right? And you want a choice. If you're not drinking, you don't always want the strawberry lemonade, you know, sometimes you do though. Sometimes you want, you know, there's not one kind of non-alc drink that every non-alc drinker wants all of the time. And so seeing the category grow and all of these options come into it so exciting and gives us, you know, as hospitality professionals and bar operators, you know, an exciting new place. Like I, I always say to, you know, to bartenders, like if you don't have something for people who aren't drinking on your menu, you're missing out on the opportunity to show your hospitality, your talent, your skill set, everything that you've created with your bar program. You've got now got a section of people that don't get to experience that. So seeing these products come into play and you know open that door and seeing the industry really kind of like understand and accept that and get excited about it is is a cool frontier. Happy to be here. <laughs> I love that. Well, I appreciate you both for your time. Um, and I hope to see you both soon. Indeed. Yeah. Awesome. Cheers, y'all. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Currency Exchange podcast. To learn more about Currency Exchange, World Class, or Diageo, visit fohealth.org backslash currency dash exchange.